greetings from Grace Church in Memphis, Tennessee. As Craig said, uh, we're a part of a church uh, that began uh, about 13 years ago in uh, the Memphis area. Uh, Pastor Nathan, who you've probably seen, uh, if you've been here for a while, you've seen more times than myself, uh, reminded me a minute ago that uh, Craig said eight or nine, it's eight, uh, giving, us, giving us credit for nine maybe, but um, we've been here eight times, and it truly has been a, a joy and a blessing to be with you. And our congregation prays for your congregation uh, on a regular basis. And it is a joy to be reminded of God's work uh, in this place. And each time we come, uh, Craig said, for encouragement, for our encouragement, uh, we, we are certainly encouraged. And it's good to see a few faces that I remember from last time. Uh, I'm terrible with names. Uh, so... Uh, if I don't remember your name, uh, uh, please uh, forgive me. Uh, it is a joy this time. Um, for the first time, Grace Church uh, uh, was able to send a, a couple of ladies. So Nathan, Nathan's wife, April, is here, and then my wife, Angie, were able to... Uh, everybody from America is not named Angie, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, uh, my wife, Angie, is here with us as well. Well... I'm going to be in the book of Haggai today, not a common book uh, that we uh, spend a lot of time in, but um, I'm hopeful that you've had at least an opportunity uh, along the way in your walk with the Lord to have spent some time in the book. And a lot of times when we uh, go into those Old Testament prophet books, especially the smaller ones, what we call the minor prophets, uh, a lot of times we're, we're, we're trying to remember uh, where in the timeline does this fit? What, what is... What is the purpose of this little uh, prophecy that we find in the Old Testament? We want to give some attention to Haggai this morning. Uh, I want to begin by reading the first 11 verses, the first 11 verses of chapter 1, uh, and then we'll pray for, uh, again, the preaching of God's Word. So uh, listen as I read from Haggai chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, and on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the government of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. 
I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Well, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to buy some furniture from Ikea before. But when you go buy furniture from Ikea, you see it at the store and it looks nice and you're thinking this is going to look really good in the kitchen or living room or bedroom. And so you go and you purchase that item and they give you a box. They give you a box that has 122 pieces of wood. Not to mention a giant bag of various metal and plastic doodads that are supposed to connect all those pieces of wood together. And so you spread out all the wood and you get your parts and you pull out the instructions and you follow those instructions perfectly through the first 23 steps. And then you realize there's still 15 more steps to go. And you've gotten the hang of things. I know what I'm doing now. I understand these instructions and I'm starting, I can see how it's going to fit together. And so in your newfound confidence, you just set the instructions aside and you complete the project on your own. Unfortunately, this is exactly what happens in our relationship with God all the time. Though we begin with God, when things start going well, we'll set Him and His Word aside and press forward without Him. Let me pray and then we'll continue. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things in Your Word. And we pray that your gospel would come not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Haggai gives his prophecy, Jerusalem was first invaded by the Babylonians in 606 B.C., with many of the people of Israel being taken away as exiles, including Daniel, who we're familiar with. And in 586 B.C., 20 years later, Jerusalem was besieged and falls. So they're invaded. 20 years later, they fall. The city's burned. And this glorious temple that Solomon had built, perhaps you remember the story of Sheba coming to see Solomon and his temple and God in all His glory. And she worships. It was that magnificent temple which Scripture says there's never been another temple before or after like it. The city was burned and the temple destroyed. The Babylonians reigned. But eventually, even the Babylonians are overrun by the Persians in 538 B.C. So about 50 years later, led by Cyrus, who allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And that's a significant event in Haggai's day. And Cyrus even agrees to help the Jews rebuild the temple. And though the foundations of rebuilding Jerusalem had begun, we know that the project somewhere along the way is hindered. And I believe that it was hindered selfishly by the people and providentially by God. So that in 520 B.C., about 18 years after they returned back to Jerusalem, Haggai preaches this message that we have before us today. And we know according to Ezra that the temple was eventually rebuilt 
and dedicated less than four years after Haggai preaches his message. So for 18 years, they've returned and the temple's not rebuilt. Haggai preaches four years later, the temple is finally rebuilt. So Haggai's sandwiched between Ezekiel's vision of the rebuilt temple and the actual work and completion of the temple that we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This little book gives us two chapters filled with, I believe, rich instruction that help us apply God's word to our lives today. And I believe it's broken into three parts that we'll be able to identify as we look at the text together. Number one is repentance. God tells us to consider our ways. The second is believe. Believe. He tells us to take courage uh, several times in the text. And then the last is to receive. To receive God's blessing. To watch God fulfill His promises. Well, in those first 11 verses that you may have heard me read earlier, two times in verse 5 and verse 7, God tells the Jews, consider your ways. Consider your ways. This command is a, a warning that He gives us. The way that the Jews had gone about life was similar to the way we would put that Ikea piece of furniture together. When we feel like we're getting the hang of things, then we kind of venture out on our own. We no longer need the instructions. We got the hang of this. And we're happy to move on without God's help. They were no longer in need, so they thought that they no longer needed God's help. Here were these people who were in exile and had gone through so much difficulty and turmoil only to be delivered by God and given the freedom to return home and to rebuild their lives. In 18 years into that return, the people, the people of God, who had been blessed by God in these ways, adopted a me-first mentality. I'm going to take care of myself first, and then I'll worry about others and the things of God. And though God was their God, they had ceased to consider Him first. And they began to operate in their own power, doing things their own way. They began to think about their individual interests rather than the interests of others, or more importantly, and collectively, the interest of God. If you look back with me in verse 2, it says, Thus the Lord of, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says... So God's saying, this is what you're saying to me. This is what God hears by the actions of His people. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came... <laughs> By Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. So here's that first warning. Consider your ways. Well, he's given them very clearly some instruction. The warning is consider your ways. This meaning was consider what you've done and are doing and realize that you've forgotten me. Realize that you have set me to the side. Realize that you've put your interests before the interests of God. Consider your ways was a call to repentance. Was to repent of their self-centeredness and to fix their eyes on God. We must always repent when we do anything our way. To exclude God from the equation is sin. To consider yourself before God is sin. 
It's called idolatry. It's worshiping yourself rather than God. You see yourself as more important than God. And not only is this sinful, but quite honestly, if you think about the Jews of this day, it almost seems crazy. Like they had lost their mind that they were doing something so foolishly after so recently being delivered by God from this bondage that they were in and able to return home, how quickly they forgot of him. But I want you to see how God responds to those who consider themselves first. When you consider yourself first, what's God's reaction to that? Well, look with me in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, you've sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So he warns them again, verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. There's God's aim. There's his desire, verse 8. Then he says, he goes back to his response to us when we consider ourselves first. He says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. And then he tells us why he does that. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house, therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Think about that. Think about how frustrating that would be. Have you, have you ever worked hard to earn something and then right about the time that you've saved up enough money to make this purchase or to do something that would be necessary, something comes along and it costs you and you have to spend all that money that you were saving for this particular thing and you have to spend it on something that you didn't desire to spend it on. Whatever that may be and how frustrating that feels. Can you imagine uh, putting money into a purse and then there being a hole in the bottom of the purse. It falls out, somebody else gets the benefit of it after you had earned it and thought you were putting it somewhere safe but only to find out that it, it was gone. Never to be found again. Well, I imagine that we've all experienced something like that, something frustrating uh, along those lines. Well, listen to me. In this text, God's making it very clear that He's the one frustrating the people. He's the one that's causing their labor to be in vain. God is working against the people who had considered them, themselves first rather than considering God first. The fruit of their labor was frustrated by God. Everything they attempted to accomplish, even things that may even, been, may even have been considered honorable or good, were failing. It all ended in failure. God would not allow them to prosper until they had considered their ways or repented of their ways and considered Him first. So my question to you this morning is, have you considered your ways? Is God being considered first in your life? My hope is that you can answer yes to both those questions. But if you're like me, there certainly are seasons of life or times in life, decisions that I make that reflect that I didn't consider God. 
that I had made a decision without going before the Lord. When I begin to do things my way, well, if you have to answer no to one of those questions, then I want you to take courage, not to be discouraged, not because it's acceptable to operate with that me first mentality, not because it's acceptable not to consider God, but because God remains faithful to his people despite our actions. Look with me in verse 12 of that same chapter. There's a, I believe, a colossal shift in what takes place in the book of Haggai. First notice the language change from the Lord of hosts. That's how God's been described in the first 11 verses. The Lord of hosts, which is a, a, a fantastic name for the Lord. But I want you to hear the change in how God is described in verse 12. Look with me in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reference for the Lord. Do you hear the change in the way that God is described? In verse 12, he's their God. He's the Lord, their God, rather than just the Lord of hosts. We're reminded that he is our God, that he is for us. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant personally considered God again. That consideration that they had been commanded in verses 5 and 7 take place in verse 12. The people of God consider God. And their considering of God, the remnant of Jews, two things happen. They obey the voice of the Lord, and they show reverence to the Lord. We find those in verse 12. Secondly, notice what God declares to His people. He says, I am with you. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. I don't know about you, but those are sweet words to my ears. That even when I become selfish and consider myself first and set the things of God aside, God gently draws me back. God gently draws me back and He reminds me not only to consider my ways, but He reminds me that He is with me, that He is my God, and that He is with me. I hope those words are sweet to you. I can't think of many words that would sound sweeter to the believer's ear, that God is with us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is with you? That God is with you? Well, it's my hope and prayer that you do believe that. Not just in a mental capacity, not just believing with my mind, but that experientially you know that God is with you. That you believe God is with you. Believing is... Let me say it like this, believing in this reality that God is with us, I believe is the colossal shift that takes place in verse 12. It changes our perspective. That is the great shift for, I believe, the Jews in Jerusalem. They'd been there for 18 years and all they had thought about was themselves. And when they give attention to God, when they consider Him and are reminded that He is with them, their actions change. The considering God causes them to act. They return to obedience and they uh, have this renewed reverence for God. 
But I believe there's still more that God does in this great shift that we're inclined to, to give Him credit for. Look at verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. Now these two names are together. Their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. God is the one who stirs our spirit to believe and act. So even when we're unfaithful, God is faithful to us to call us back to Himself, to stir our spirits. The Lord is stirring us up, His people, to accomplish the work that He's called us to do. Now I want you to notice something in this text. He doesn't just stir up the leadership, but He stirs up the hearts of all the people. Yes, it began with the, the leaders, those that God had set aside. But He stirred up the heart of all the people. This is how God works. He works among the remnant of His people. He works among the church. He doesn't just give leaders this special word from Himself, but He speaks to all His people. He's called the church to function in united mind and spirit. The same work that they had tried to accomplish in their own power, apart from God, that had consistently failed, is suddenly renewed. And they begin to work. The same God, who a few verses earlier was frustrating the work of their hands, was now stirring their hearts to accomplish the work. And once they had considered their ways, repented, and had their hearts stirred by God, then the real work began. I don't know if you know this, but that's exactly what God does among us today. That's exactly how God operates. When we set our interest aside, repent of that, give our attention to God, He stirs our hearts. And when God stirs our hearts, then the real work begins. All the things that we would hope to accomplish, God does. He sets us about to accomplish His great work. All work, apart from our considering God, hearing His voice and obeying, listen to me, I'll say it again, with Haggai, it's in vain. It's empty. It's like putting money in a purse with holes. But not only is it vain, and it's certainly that, but God makes it clear that it's sin. The remnant had not accomplished in 18 years what God had called them to do because they had not considered God first. Perhaps some of you are dialing up in your mind a, 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 a verse that's familiar uh, probably to a lot of us. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then what? And He'll add all these things, all these other things that you would want to give your attention to. He'll add that. But seeking His kingdom first must take place. Now I want you to see what Haggai does next. We'll, we'll, we'll jump into chapter 2 and uh, press forward. Haggai reiterates the same message found at the end of chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. It's only two chapters long, this, this prophecy. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... So he's still addressing leadership and the people. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Who is left among you? who saw this temple in its former glory. He's talking about Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? 
Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Does that not sound like the same message that he just preached to him at the end of chapter 1? I mean, listen to the similarities. He's calling them to take courage. He's telling them to work. Why? Because he says, I am with you. Was that not the message in Haggai chapter 1? And that they will be able to accomplish it. But he adds something in verse 5 that I want us to give some attention to. He says, as for the promise which I made you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. He was asking those who remember Solomon's temple in all its glory. Those that had the privilege that Sheba had to see this glorious temple. But not just the glory of the temple, but what took place in that temple. That Solomon would climb up those steps and enter into this house and give God glory. Sheba got to see Solomon worship. It wasn't just the majesty of the temple, but it was the God who the temple was built for. It was Solomon's worship. Solomon had all this splendor. If there's any a man, ever a man on the planet that could put uh, hope in his worth and value because he was the wealthiest that they had ever seen. And he had more wisdom than any other. He had a lot of reasons to put hope in himself. But this man who had greater wealth and wisdom than anybody would walk up these steps and go in and worship his God. Sheba saw that and she was impacted by that. He's asking those people, do you remember the majesty of the temple? Do you remember that the temple caused Sheba to make a journey for its fame and magnificence? Do you see the glory of God? That's what's being asked. This was no small recollection that God was calling the remnant to. He was reminding them, not of some great architecture or the beauty of the building, but He was reminding them how He was among them in his glory he was reminding them of his glory that's what he wanted them to be reminded of but what they saw before them was just a shadow of the temple in its former glory it seemed like nothing in comparison because it had been reduced to a pile of rubble so that when they walked by the place where the temple used to exist they just saw its ruins do you know what Haggai's doing here it's only 50 days after he preached the first message where he said, consider your ways. God is with you. Take courage. Do the work. He, re he repeats the same message. It's the same sermon. He's preaching the same message to them, the same truth that God is with them. He's preaching the same reality that He is their God and He's with them. Take courage. Keep working. I'm with you. You, you see the message. God's doing to them what He has to do to us today. We need constant gospel reminder in our lives. To be reminded what God has done. That Christ came and lived a life without sin. And was crucified on the cross. And rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. We have to be reminded of that gospel. So that we'll press on. So that we'll continue to hope in God. So that we'll do the work. So that we'll take courage. And so I would say, preach the gospel to those around you. Not just to the unbeliever who we certainly hope would hear the message, 
repent and believe, but to the believer, to the saints. Preach the gospel. It's the most encouraging thing that you can give them. And preach that gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I want us to push on in the text into verse 6. I want you to listen to how God works among His people. See, two things have already happened. One is there was repentance that was necessary. That's consider your ways. And I believe take courage was a call to believe, to be reminded that God is with us. Believe that God is with you. But there's a third thing that happens. If we repent and we believe, then I believe we receive the blessing of God. Look with me in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with wealth, with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't know if you've heard or read all that, but it was full of gospel truth. Yes, four verses in Haggai chapter 2, I think, are loaded with gospel truth. Loaded with gospel truth. It had the aroma of Calvary in it. Listen to the promises that God makes to his people in chapter 2. All right? Verse 4, he says, God promises to be with us. All right? Listen to these promises. God promises to be with us in verse 4. God promises to give us the Holy Spirit, or that He would be in our midst in verse 5. In verse 6, God promises to shake the heavens. In verse 9, He promises to bring greater glory. And also in verse 9, He promises to give His people peace. To be with us, that the Holy Spirit would be in our midst, that He would shake the heavens and bring greater glory and give us peace. Are those not the same realities that we find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Are those not the same realities that we find in the person and work of Jesus? Now remember the glory of Solomon's temple, that temple that now laid in ruins. And for 18 years, God's people had walked by that pile of rubble that it had become and did nothing. They saw the rubble and they did nothing. The ruined temple wasn't a priority because they could not see God's glory. They had forgotten God's glory. They had set it aside. But God says in verse 7, He will fill this house with His glory. That God will fill this house with His glory. And not only that, but that He would fill it with greater glory than before. Now, He's not talking about the rebuilding of the temple, though they certainly were going to do that. But He's talking about a greater awareness of His glory among the people. That's what He was speaking of. That there would be a greater awareness of His glory among the people. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now the temple being rebuilt would represent what the previous temple represented. The dwelling of the glorious presence of God. But I want you to know that the first temple that was crushed by the Babylonians is just like Christ being crushed for our iniquities. God had a purpose in it. Just like Christ being crushed for our iniquities. And just like the temple laid in runs for all to see for 18 years, Jesus hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem, a spectacle 
for all to see. And just as a day of greater glory was coming for that old temple in Jerusalem, that it would be rebuilt in greater glory, God was going to shake the heavens and the earth and rebuild the, te- rebuild the temple with the wealth of the nations. So there was going to be timber and gold and silver come from all these places that Jerusalem couldn't provide for itself. But God was going to see to it that he took the wealth of the nations to come in and to rebuild this temple. In the same way, the heavens and earth shook, splitting a giant gravestone in two. And God's greater glory was revealed when Christ burst forth from the dead, conquering sin and death, possessing the keys to Hades causing the angels in heaven to erupt into deafening shouts of victory like the world had never heard. No greater glory has the world ever known than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Craig told me he's preaching through the resurrection. Well, there's no physical resurrection of a human being in this story, but there is a resurrection of God's glory among His people that's taken place in the preaching of of Haggai. No greater glory has the world ever known than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this rebuilding of the temple in Haggai's day was only a glimpse, a very small glimpse of what was to come. Like the first temple that laid in runs, Christ was crucified and dead. So also these physical temples of ours, these bodies of ours, must be done away with. The old man must be destroyed. And just like the new greater glory temple that was being rebuilt in Haggai's day, Christ rose from the grave so that we too can be raised to walk in new, glorious life. That's what God does among His people. Like the temple, we are ruined. But God promises He can raise us to greater glory. He did so in His own Son. And He promises, I'm thinking Romans 6, where He promises to raise us to walk in newness of life. He can raise us with the price of sin being paid for. He can raise us with the righteousness of Christ in us. He can raise us in greater glory. We simply must believe. We must repent of our sin. Take courage that God is able to rebuild what we cannot. And without fear, believe that He will raise us up again. This is our only hope. Or, we can continue to ignore God. Labor on your own. Operating out of that me first mentality, not considering God, trying to hopelessly attain to some form of glory that resembles nothing of the true glory of God. We can live life for ourselves, trying to accomplish glory for ourselves that looks nothing like the glory of God. Or we can consider our ways, set all of our desires aside and put our hope in Christ, in Christ alone, and see God do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Well, I want to skip a few verses to put an end to this morning's sermon. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. So here we are, two months after Haggai preaches his second sermon, he preaches again. This is his third sermon that we find in his book. Asking the remnant to consider God and believe that he will bless them. Reminding them that our old ways are unclean before God and that our only hope is in him. Look with me in verse 20. It says, Then the word of the Lord came 
a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens of the earth and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of of hosts. This is what I want to conclude with. It is here that I'm convinced that God reminds them of his promise to the people of Israel. This is his promise to them. It might sound like confusing language, but nobody outside of God ultimately knows what God used Zerubbabel to do. So in these days when they hear this promise that he'll make them a signet ring, nobody in his day knows exactly what's going to happen to Zerubbabel. But we have him saying, I will make you like a signet ring. Well, if we try to follow what happens to Zerubbabel in Scripture, we find that he really vanishes from the historical record at this point. We don't know what happened to Zerubbabel. We just know God promised to make him a signet ring. But I believe there's some significant information that we can find from Scripture that lets us know exactly what happens. We do know that after Zerubbabel, uh, the kings that followed him didn't follow God the way that they should have. There's a curse upon one of Zerubbabel's descendants in Jeremiah chapter 22. It says this, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, that's one of Zerubbabel's descendants, the son of Jehokim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. He's saying, I, I want to take, take the signet away from this family. So there's certainly rebellion that follows, but God kept His promise. We know that the sins of men, even Zerubbabel's descendants, could not thwart the unconditional promise that God gave to Zerubbabel. That He would bring about in Zerubbabel the Messiah from the line of David. David's own sin, as a matter of fact, couldn't thwart God's faithfulness to His promise to prove that. And we know that Zerubbabel, the heir of David's throne and predecessor to Christ, was a chosen guardian of chosen people of God. He says, for I have chosen you. And we find evidence that God kept this promise to Zerubbabel in Matthew chapter 1 when we read through the lineage of Christ. And the reason I point all that out, that God promises in the book of Haggai to make Zerubbabel a signet ring, and that his name reappears in Matthew chapter 1 is to say, when God makes a promise to his people, he keeps it. Even the sin of his people can't thwart him. Now here's the difference. If you're thinking, well, if God's going to keep his promise, then my sin doesn't matter. Your sin does matter. Your sin does matter. Because the sin of the people in that day caused them frustration. It kept them from receiving the blessing that God intended for them. But if you'll consider your ways, repent of your sin. If you will take courage, believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then I believe you'll receive the blessing that God has for you, not only in this life, but obviously for all eternity. So the application, I believe, is clear. When God makes a promise, it's irreversible. No man can reverse it. No power can overturn the promise that's sealed in Jesus Christ. 
Not even God would reverse his promise to us in Haggai. And we see it more plainly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God doesn't change. He will not change his promise to us in Christ. And he didn't change his promise to Zerubbabel. God's choice of Zerubbabel was irreversible. Listen to me. And God's choice of you as a follower of Christ is irreversible. The question is, will you consider your ways and take courage? Let me pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would be gracious to us, that you would cause us not to consider ourselves first, but you first, that we, can, we would consider Jesus Christ and him crucified, that that would be the dominant theme of our life. And Father, I pray that that consideration would give us courage, would give us courage to follow after you regardless of cost, that we would follow after you despite what we would want to do for ourselves. And Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be, to set about to do your work in your place, your way. And Father, I trust that you'll keep your promise to bless your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we...